Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. Today in the United States, nine out of 10 psychiatric beds are located in jails and prisons. And our national history of psychiatric care has been complicated, to say the least. Issues of race and class, as well as shifting public attitudes about how to treat and manage those with mental illnesses, have produced crises of various kinds in communities around the country, but perhaps nowhere so much as in the Deep South. Today, we're talking to Map Segrist, Fuller Bataille Professor Emeritus of Gender and Women's Studies at Connecticut College. As a fellow at the center this year, Mab is working on a new book considering these questions and focusing in particular on the dramatic 170-year history of the notorious state mental hospital in Georgia's antebellum capital, Milledgeville. So welcome, Mab. Glad to be here, Robert. So Milledgeville. When I read about Milledgeville, obviously, I immediately think about Flannery O'Connor. Right. Uh, and I believe Milledgeville is referred to in Alice Walker and Carson McCullers, and it's not a pleasant place. So the background of this project is a fascinating story of scholarly discovery. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, you mentioned O'Connor and Carson McCullers and Alice Walker, and I came to this as a literary scholar and a scholar of Southern literature who grew up in um, segregated Alabama, so had quite a stake in understanding my culture and had these references to Milledgeville that were quite ominous but very unspecific in works like Carson McCullers' Member of the Wedding where she's a very gender-bending little 13-year-old who's threatened by her maid slash surrogate mother, Bernice, that you better be careful. They're going to come around here and tie you up and drag you off to Milledgeville. So it was clearly not a good place to go. I grew up in Alabama, very close to McCullers because I was in the uh, eastern part of the state. And we were threatened with Bryce's. Uh, if we were too rambunctious as children, you better be careful. They'll take you to Bryce's. And for most people of my generation, I'm in the 60s now, the threat was the name of the town or the city where the state mental hospital was. I think younger people don't realize that because deinstitutionalization has really dispersed people who are perceived to be mentally ill or cognitively disabled when in the century or two centuries before, everyone was segregated, congregated, and kind of moved to the side and treated in one place or maybe two for decades and centuries. So I went immediately when I found a story about the hospital from 1998 where former patients as members of this thing called the Consumer Council went back to this little museum that was a, had been the train station to see the lobotomy tools and the electroshock machines and um, they were just in tears and then they went to see where a cemetery, one of the many cemeteries on this huge campus, 1,700 acres up to 3,000 at some point of state land, with all of these markers that were metal stobs with only numbers on them, just knocked over and also spreading into the woods as far as I could see. And they were just sobbing by the end of it. But I was completely fascinated by the picture and two weeks later was there in the museum. And uh, the more I studied it, the more I realized that the story was not so much about McCullers or O'Connor is about this particular mental hospital and how these state asylums slash hospitals functioned in the South in a way as important as prisons but really not looked into in a way that reverberated across the culture because there might be just 
as many as 13,000, for instance, um, patients at Milledgeville in its height when it was at various times the largest state hospital in the world. But if every little girl in Georgia or Alabama knew that you better be careful if you are too adventurous or this or the other or they'll drag you there, then it has a kind of internalizing policing effect. So it got me completely curious. And the more I got into it, the more I decided I wanted to try to do a history of the institution. So mm-hmm. that's what I've been working on. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about how, how a culture, that is the South, that justified slavery and refused to prosecute lynching got to decide who is, who is and who is not seen. It's a question that happens in county administrative units, and it might seem like an obvious question or something, but actually it's pretty complicated. But I also want to make the point, though, that the story I've decided to tell uh, on lunacy administration is raised psychiatry in Georgia State Hospital, because what you see from all of these archives, once percolated in them, which I've done for 10 years, is the story of race and what's called white settler colonialism which is where people from Europe came not to just extract and take back to the mother countries, but to stay and reap the spoils of the continent, which they did all along the East Coast and spread. So this is the story in Georgia of this settler encroachment that pushes out native peoples and then brings slavery in. So it's a massively turbulent and violent culture, and it's not just happening in Georgia, and it's not just happening in the South. It is really a national story. But what you don't get from reading psychiatric historians who start with the Northeast and have a kind of trickle down to the South and are fairly condescending towards Southern institutions that they view as unscientific and aberrant, which might or might not be true, but they can then dismiss or bracket a national racism that you have to see from the South. (laughs) And many of the racist ideas that these settlers and their elites bring with them and then develop, and then develop through psychiatry, are national, but you see them so acutely because Georgia, according to black historian Orlando Patterson in Slavery and Social Death, the United States had the most developed slave culture since the Roman Empire. And Virginia and Georgia were the most intense states. Milledgeville was in Baldwin County. There were 17 big plantations in Baldwin County, and two-thirds of the legislators came there and were slave owners. So it's a very slave-drenched state, but the whole country is slave-drenched if you consider how the economy works and what's being extracted from slavery is a cash economy and how financial mechanisms are being invented there. So it's very much a national story and a global story told from Georgia in a way that you can see it. So how does the whole science of psychiatry as it's evolving during the early history of Milledgeville, at least through the First World War, how does what's going on in Milledgeville inculcate the various models that we're getting in psychiatry, the establishment of the DSM, categories being premised on biological models rather than sociocultural variations? How much is Milledgeville indicative of, indeed, instrumental in those kinds of categories? The thing to know uh, about psychiatry is it started off in these asylums that uh, had been just custodial or sometimes punitive institutions going back in Europe to Middle Ages, if not before. But there was an Enlightenment idea that came in France and England that you could make make the custodial institution curative by giving it an orderly structure and by a kind of talking cure of the doctors, um, which sounds a little bit like Freud later, but that you could have a humane, structured environment that gave people a place to sleep and good meals and let them 
interact with nature and have recreations and have doctors talking to them, and this would restore the mind to rationality. So the first psychiatrists, although they weren't called that, were asylum superintendents. So the asylum itself is the locus of psychiatry through the 19th century. It's the relationship you get there of the state and the mind or the state and the psyche. And so the questions emerge, well, what interest does the state have in adjudicating insanity, kind of, in deciding who comes and who doesn't and how they're treated and why and so forth? Like they get there because of behaviors, because of feelings, because of ideas that are seen as aberrant, as outside the norm or as that make the folks back home no longer capable of dealing with them. So what you get in the institution over the decades is the aggregate from these county levels that are also ignoring lynching or sending black men off to uh, convict lease systems or whatever. So, and it accumulates from that in an interesting kind of way that I've been trying to trace. But these biological categories, though, uh, heavily determine and justify slavery, um, that Africans are less human or of a different species or primitive or have no emotional capacity. And so it's very easy to justify white superiority and ownership and all the profits that come from that to the detriment of white people. I mean, one of the things I'm trying to show, too, that you don't get in a lot of the psychiatry is it focuses increasingly on African-American pathologies is the white pathologies that are happening in the next county when black people are being lynched and with all the dreadful tortures that go along with that. I mean, if anything would be insane, you would think that is, and yet it never makes it, those people don't get sent to the asylum, and no black person's um, the effects of lynching or slavery or sharecropping or poverty, like those don't show up in these asylum records that are really kind of stripped of history. So once you can strip people of their history, what critics today of the DSM call socio-cultural variation, which they've criticized DSM-5, the latest diagnostic and statistical manual of, then you can just rewrite the scripts and say, well, these people are just like that. Um, they're immoral, which happens by the end of the 19th century going into the 20th, theories of degeneracy that some populations' diagnoses and behaviors are hereditary, or eugenics ideas, which come somewhat out of some versions of studies of heredity, but also the fact that the Carnegie Institute gave huge amounts of money to the Cold Springs Harbor Eugenics Office and Laboratory in Long Island, definitely not Georgia, to really propagate these ideas of, of eugenics and fitter people and families that travel lots of places, including to Nazi Germany. We do a lot of that groundwork and work into sterilization and so forth in the institution itself. So that's just a little bit of kind of how it plays out. So I'm really interested in the methodology that you use to construct this narrative history, as, as it were. So, so it strikes me as a kind of Geertzian thick uh, right. description. Yeah. But are you focusing on patient archives, that is, narratives of mm -hmm. patients, narratives of doctors, mm -hmm. medical reports? Is there a consistent voice that you can uh, generate through all of this? Consistent is the last thing it is. <laughs> it's fairly eccentric history, really, because it's a history of eccentricity and the boundaries of eccentricity and what happens when people are perceived to exceed them, although I'm not a Foucault person necessarily in this. I'm kind of waiting to see where it comes out. You know, it's taken me a while, maybe a decade, to get the method in the madness, so-called. You know, like how to make a narrative out of a set of 
mostly tragedies, first tens and then hundreds and then thousands of people in here in this one institution coming from various counties, from various classes, although increasingly poor and working class, gender, race, uh, you're a veteran of the Civil War or the Spanish-American War and so forth. So it's really a compendium of people. But I've wanted to tell it from the perspective of the patients, whom I kind of fell in love with in a way, in some of the archives, reading their voices, and they just seem so human to me, and many of them so reasonable, or their eccentricities very familiar. And I realized, too, that most of psychiatric history is told kind of from the top down, from the administrators, uh, from the annual reports, from the diagnostic categories. And I wanted to start with the patients. Um, and so each chapter, or most chapters, start with a patient that seems to exemplify the particular issue I want to make clear. For instance, Nancy Malone and talking about Cherokee removal. And this is just how she's uh, described, which is really one of my most favorite <laughs> descriptions by a superintendent of a patient. Uh, and Nancy is in her 40s or 50s. She's a wanderer. She's just been out and gone all around Georgia and doesn't stay home and is not a good housewife. Quote, she's frequently imagining wars, battles, murders, camp meetings, Indian invasions and massacres going on in rapid progression and retrogression in her confused farrago of delusive mental perceptions and aberrations with their appalling apprehensions of defeat or exhilarating anticipations of success by the belligerent combatant. She's assaulted, though innocent, holding religion and scripture in derision and contempt, almost incessantly talking to herself and supposed persons. It's really a wonderful description. And here's like Nancy Malone, uh, who is this griot of Georgia culture. She's from one of the Western counties, so she's probably made this progression all across the state. I can kind of imagine her down under the bushes watching, say, the Trail of Tears go by or slave coffles come south from uh, the Carolinas, for instance, or back in the swamps where the maroons are, or at these camp meetings where there'd be 10,000 people and ministers so exuberant that people start to imagine the devil is pitching people into lakes of fire. There was this category of religious excitement. There were maybe under 50 of those people who had been diagnosed by 1850, but if 10,000 people are going to a revival... <laughs> And having this mass hallucination that the devil is throwing people, like, how do you decide which 39 people? So it's that kind of detail. One of the things that I had read in the article from 1998 of this guy who had been uh, Joe Ingram, who was called the black superintendent, but he was the highest person up, African-American. And he talks about these cemeteries. He said it was the most lonely site in Georgia, shunned when living, denied when dead, they could have been us. You just get this voice. I mean, I just felt like, wow, this is like a story. Like, this is, a, this is an amazing story that has all of these different voices in it. Or one of my also favorite patients, whom I've called Mary Roberts, who's admitted in 1911 once they start having verbatim transcripts, and she's having this whole kind of debate with the psychiatrist about whether the voices she hears are real because she's been diagnosed, they don't decide whether she's manic depressive or schizophrenic, but she's talking to voices and she's dancing and singing and praying and shouting, which really irritates them a lot. But she stays exalted on the wards. Turns out she's had 11 pregnancies, nine of her babies died, eight brothers and sisters, four died. So she's having very, a lot of grief there. And yet she's being diagnosed as if 
the dancing and singing, which is a spiritual practice, I argue, is part of a manic depression. You know, so it's really completely flat reading for culture there. And this is part of her discussion. The doctor says when she talks about having conversations with dead brothers and sisters, when you see those things, do you think they are real things? And she says, no, sir. He says, you just imagine you see them, don't you? She says, they are real things, but they are not living things. Uh, Do you really hear those voices? You just imagine that you hear them. She says, I think they're actual voices. Have you heard any lately? Yes, sir. Whose voices? I can't tell. Maybe her brothers and sisters, did they tell her to do anything? Does she have to obey? No, she doesn't. She couldn't do anything bad. Um, Do you think it's possible he asked to hear the voice of a dead person? She says, yes, sir. How can you hear them if they aren't dead? She said, I see them too. That's not strange about hearing a dead person's voice. A lot of people die and then come back and talk. So she just the particularity of the voice and her own perspective and her ability to hold her reality against a psychiatrist who is just flattening it and denigrating it and is going to diagnose it. And the psychiatrist will not agree on her diagnosis, but she will stay in the asylum and she will dance her way probably to her death. So it's people like that that are really the heart of the study for me. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked a little bit about racial differences and racial matters. How about gender? I mean, this is a nice segue. This example is a nice segue into that. Right. Well, race and gender and class are all constituted at the same time. It's not like race is on Mars and genders on whatever, you know. And intersectional analysis is one of the main innovations of contemporary feminism, particularly by women of color, that all these things happen together and we have to have a kind of fluid construction of those. Uh, In Southern culture in the 19th century, gender will always be important and white women and African-American women will have very different situations. In fact, the black people are segregated when they come in from Freedmen's Bureau hospitals in 1967. They're put into rapidly constructed and inferior buildings behind the white buildings and they will remain in segregated quarters by race and gender through 1963 or 1964 when the institution massive by then deinstitutionalizes. So there's that kind of segregation and then there's the attendant conditions from that. There's outbreaks of tuberculosis both across the world and Georgia and the United States by the late 19th century. They're exacerbated within the institution because black people are in the most crowded structures. You have parasites from the dirt. You have pellagra, which is nutritional. So there's a whole set by the beginning of the 20th century of really epidemics that are both thriving in the institution and caused by institutional conditions at the very same time that this venerated superintendent, Superintendent Powell, is turning increasingly towards eugenics arguments which are counter to public health and counter their very conditions there. So most of the time, the science, the practice, is a fairly confused strata of like the germ theory with eugenics and old heredity ideas or public health. The latest diagnostic and statistical manual, which is the Bible that links psychiatry as a profession with insurance in medicine, um, that's how you get your prescriptions, you get a diagnosis and so forth. And there have been five of them, the first in 1952, but the ways of thinking about those were coming into effect with Mary Roberts here. Those categories were being applied to her very poorly back in 1911. So the criticism has been stringent criticism of the DSM-5, including by Alan Francis, who's the psychiatrist at Duke, who was editor of DSM-4, 
There was a group two of the DSM-5 task force of the American Psychiatric Association from the DSM task force of the Society for Humanistic Psychology that was this huge critique of DSM-5 that included lowering of diagnostic thresholds from multiple diagnostic categories. If you lower the thresholds, more people have disease, more people get medicated or treated or whatever who might not need to be. Introduction of disorders that may lead to inappropriate medical treatments of vulnerable populations. Again, we've seen the vulnerability of populations all the way through at Milledgeville, of black people, of women, of poor people, of what emerges as queers. Specific proposals that appear to lack empirical grounding. In addition, we question proposed changes to the definition of mental disorder that de-emphasize socio-cultural variation while placing more emphasis on biological theory, which is what was happening in the 19th century with eugenics versus epidemics within the asylum. In light of the growing empirical evidence that neurobiology, and I'm still quoting here, does not fully account for the emergence of mental distress, an important <laughs> clause, as well as new longitudinal studies revealing long-term hazards of standard neurobiology. We believe that these changes pose substantial risk to patients, clients, practitioners, and the mental health profession in general. In the absence of compelling evidence, we are concerned that these reconceptualizations of mental disorder is primarily medical phenomenon, not sociocultural, not historic, as which is history is what I'm using for that may have scientific, socioeconomic, and forensic consequences. And one of them is that 9 out of 10 beds now are in jails or prisons right. because we've had this remote... Yeah, yes. yeah. So finally, talk to our audience about the effect that you hope this project will have on public mental health policy or on issues of social justice. Well, I certainly have worked on this for over a decade, and I have persevered at it and tried to hone it because... I feel like the nexus of U.S. psychiatry and the emergence of racism is a story that hasn't been told, the degree to which psychiatry in these state hospitals was a kind of handmaiden of white supremacy as it evolved, and that it established ways of thinking about populations and peoples and individuals that really persist today, that it individualized pathology, so it was hard to see it as part of a cultural context. I've attempted to construct a kind of meta-history of suffering, the narrative of that larger history about how we determine who suffers and who doesn't and how we treat them. And if we could get that more fully into view, then I think that we would have other alternatives. I'm not the only person saying this. I really stand with these humanistic psychologists who are saying, like, we need to rethink these categories from the ground up. We really need to rethink how we're treating this because we're way off course. It's always been this group of dissident practitioners, and I would hope to align myself with them to find the best practices in the places where people have been humane and rational and looked at reality and seen it not clouded by these bizarre and cruel and sadistic, really pathological, if we're going to use those words, racial concepts, and to try to kind of get those spider webs out of our eyes or whatever in a time where it's really crucial <laughs> that we come to this understanding of racism in this country again, because clearly... I could point to six things today, which I won't do, but clearly we are roiled by race. We have never broken this pattern of race, and partly because it's in our heads and it's the way we think and because we don't have the language to talk about ideas, feelings, and behaviors that already aren't captured, really, by these processes. So I would hope to 
denormalize some of that and point to other possibilities and just show a kind of broad humanity in the midst of all of that that anybody could relate to. And I'm sure you will. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you are. (laughs) Thank you, Mav. You're welcome. uh, For a fascinating conversation. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.